At a recent retreat, one retreatant said to me, I want to live a life of awareness. I don't want to live a lifestyle of retreat. And I think that many of us feel that, that we would really like to live with more awareness in our lifestyle, our familiar lifestyle. And we're not particularly interested in being silent, going slow, and living with a routine like we do on retreat. And so the question is, how do we establish a Dharma lifestyle, if you will? The benefits that we can acknowledge from a retreat like this are due to very specific conditions. We're physically secluded from our familiar family, friends, distractions. We have a singularity of purpose here, which is just be mindful. And everything that we do, that we hear, that we speak about, supports that singularity of purpose. Of course, we hear a lot of Dharma, both in the talks in the evenings, in the instructions, and in the questions that we answer. And we get a lot of practical advice. Of course, even with all that, it's not easy. And it's not a slam dunk that we're going to really be or become very much more mindful. We do see, even in a short retreat like this, that the defilements of the mind, the wandering mind, do get seen quicker. Maybe they don't take us away for quite so long. We are more willing to work with them, to put them aside, rather than indulge them or act them out. And the result of all this is that we do feel more inspiration to practice the Dharma. We feel clearer in our aspiration in practicing the Dharma. We feel more empowered and confident even in our understanding and practice of the Dharma. In all, we can say that we, we get a boost of Dharma, in, an infusion of Dharma in our life on a retreat like this. But as we have spoken about so frequently on this retreat, everything is impermanent. All of those conditions, or the conditions of this retreat, that have so supported our Dharma practice, our inspiration, our aspiration, our result, they're subject to change. And a lot of them change tomorrow when we go home. 
or when we go back to, when we leave the retreat setting and we go back to our familiar lifestyle. The loss of the continuity is inevitable and the multiplicity of, well, while on retreat we call them distractions, but living our life we call them necessities. <laughs> the multiplicity of necessities is just prolific and there's just so many things that we have to attend to that it's difficult even to remember the Dharma. But we should not consider the transition from retreat to home as an abandonment of the Dharma, but rather we should see it as an opportunity to make a transition. This is, this is the very time to make the commitment to try to make a transition and to see what we can carry home and what we can transplant in our life at home from our Dharma understanding here. Each morning we chant the refuges and precepts, chanting the refuges as a way of remembering and articulating our aspiration to find a refuge in the teaching in the Buddha or our own awakening in the teachings of the Buddha, in the Sangha that has carried these teachings to us over 2,500 years. And it's not always easy to find a refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. Can we find a way to make something as simple as taking the refuge a support for Dharma in our life at home as a reminder that the Dharma is also an option in everything we do. And just to remember that, just to reaffirm it daily and to remember it each day would do a lot to, to keep it in our mind. You remember that the characteristic or the manifestation of mindfulness is to remember. And if we're reminded, it's not difficult to be mindful, but it's so easy to forget. And it is so easy to forget the Dharma in our lives. And so whatever we can do to remind us with a regular chanting of the refuges and precepts and whatever it is that we do helps to keep it in our mind as an option. So I sometimes liken doing retreats like this once or twice a year to Dharma binging. <laughs> you know, we're home and we're indulging in our lifestyle at free of restraint or however we live. And then, you know, every six months or every three months or four months, we know we need to clean our act up and we, we, we go on a retreat and do a little Dharma binging. 
and stuff ourselves with the Dharma and then go home and live it off, so to speak. I don't want to minimize the commitment that, all, that many of you have already made in your life a lot, so our Dharma binging is a little bit modified with a better diet at home. But one of the, the great uh, Dharma teachers of the, the last century, Carlos Castaneda, you might remember he wrote these books about uh, Don Juan and the spiritual path of the Central American Native Americans. Don Juan was the teacher of Carlos Castaneda. And Carlos writes, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now come to realize that I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. We don't see how hard we work at worrying, creating anxiety, making endless plans that never get fulfilled, and our aversion to things not going the way we like. We have to work hard at that, although now it is often such a habit that it seems easy. And being mindful to be strong within ourselves and to be steady and stable feels like it's also very hard. Don Juan points to something that we will eventually come to see that it's just as easy to make ourselves mindful and aware and strong as it is to make ourselves miserable. The other night I spoke about the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is the truth of dukkha, which includes suffering and pain and insecurity, vulnerability. And the second Noble Truth, remember, is that the cause of this dukkha is craving, holding on, attachment, being identified with experience. It is said that the second noble truth is to be abandoned. This craving is to be abandoned. For us, that means letting go. To abandon craving, to abandon holding on, is to let go. And this fulfillment, or the realization of the second noble truth, the realization of letting go, is realized by practicing renunciation and undertaking what are known as the paramis. The paramis are the forces of purification in the mind that the bodhisattva developed and brought to perfection in order to become the Buddha. The paramis 
when I call them the forces of purification, they purify the mind of attachment, aversion, and delusion. In Burma, the understanding of the paramis is that they are the householder's practice of the second noble truth. We as householders, we don't have the, well, let's assume it's a luxury of living like the monks here, of living a life of renunciation. But really, we have the opportunity to practice the second noble truth of letting go every day. And it is their understanding that householders perfect the second noble truth in their everyday activities, at home, at work, at play, performing their civic responsibilities. And to the extent that the paramis are developed, they are the foundation for liberating insight, for the liberating knowledge that frees the mind from the defilements. Tenzin Palmo is uh, the English uh, British woman that uh, ordained as a Tibetan nun and spent 12 years in the cave up in the snow. And she said, in spiritual practice, there are no obstacles, just opportunities. Take them now, she says. Take these opportunities. There really is no obstacle. Even how we currently live, the lifestyle we live now, is not an obstacle to a spiritual life. The paramis are the qualities of the awakened mind, the qualities that the bodhisattva developed to the default setting, meaning it was the bodhisattva's first response of the mind when facing, well, all situations. So what are these paramis? Well, Kamala spoke today about the three pillars of the Dharma, or the three foundations of the Dharma, establishing them in your life as generosity and living an ethical life, or sila. And these are two of the paramis, two of the three foundations. Wisdom and energy are also paramis. These are two of the five spiritual faculties. Loving kindness and equanimity that we've practiced here Two of the four Brahma-viharas are two of the ten paramis. And the remaining three are patience, resolve, and renunciation. Now when I read through this list, generosity, ethical living, wisdom, energy, loving kindness, equanimity, patience, resolve, renunciation. These are not esoteric qualities. These are not vague. They're not remote. They're hardly spiritual. They are 
qualities that we all know, that we all have some experience of. And yet it is these qualities when brought to, when developed, are the foundation for liberation. They're not even particularly Buddhist. Good people in every culture display or exhibit these qualities. And so we know that within ourselves we have all of these qualities in our heart already. And we can see, of course, that they are not the first resort of the mind when faced with difficulties. But we have the potential. We have an undeveloped or an unfulfilled potential to be more patient, more truthful, more loving, more balanced, wiser, more energetic, more resolve. And with knowledge, effort, and skill, we can develop them. Even here, with the formal instruction of loving kindness and equanimity, and a few hours of practice, we can see the potential. We can see the power of an active practice of the Brahma Viharas, of these two paramis, in practicing generosity. Please see that it is a source of happiness in your own mind, so that when you recall your act of generosity here or at any other time, that when you recall it, it brings a glow of happiness to your heart. We have the potential to make these practices or these qualities the source of happiness in our life. But even though we have the potential of these qualities in our heart, they don't automatically mature unless we make a personal decision. And it is the personal decision to value them, to remember them, and to practice them that strengthens them. It's obvious that all of the paramis are skillful, wholesome, a good choice in life. But even though we know something is good for us, we don't always do it or follow through with it. Thomas Berry, who's a Catholic priest and eco-theologian, says that we need a mythic-sized vision to support the human effort that, is re that we're required to make. He says, the mythic vision is what evokes the energy needed to sustain the human effort involved. What is this mythic vision? that could serve us in this way. 
We don't have to become a Buddha. We don't really maybe even know what it means to become enlightened. But we can see the direction that our life is going on a retreat like this. We can see that there is a choice of direction in our life. We can choose in any moment to be a little more patient, a little more loving, a little more understanding, a little more energetic. And if we extrapolate those qualities chosen, remembered and chosen an infinite number of times, we can see, we can imagine, well, the direction and the quality of our heart by doing so. It is this mythic vision, you know, epitomized or uh, humanized by uh, the Bodhisattva in becoming a Buddha, or anyone that you see, that you value, that you revere in your life who has some or all of these qualities. But a personal decision like this to further develop these qualities requires active cultivation. For example, just remembering that patience is an option. Patience is an option. And so often we get caught, I, I do, and maybe, maybe I haven't mentioned this retreat, uh, I was not born with a patience gene. <laughs> Kamala's, Kamala's given name is Pacencia, patience. And I think it's appropriate that uh, it is my lifetime practice to live with her. <laughs> but what is it that we have to be patient with? It's not that I have to be patient with Kamala. I have to be patient with my disagreeable mind, the conditioning that allows my mind to be peeved, upset, irritated, things aren't going my way. That's what I need to be patient with. I might it might be activated by or conditioned by what Kamala does or doesn't do or what some of you might do or not do. But that's not the real cause of impatience. It's the habit of disagreeableness, the unpleasant feeling in the mind that I'm so, well, uncomfortable with. That's what I need to learn to be patient with. Every day. Well, maybe not every day. I'll let you know. I have the opportunity to practice patience. I'm remembering it more often, but I still see that there's plenty of room for improvement. Not only do we see the opportunity to uh, kind of arrest our habitual reaction, in developing the paramis we have ample opportunities to proactively cultivate these qualities of mind, not just because we're in reaction or as a response, but to seek out the opportunity to practice in this way. When we develop loving kindness, we are preparing ourselves to meet 
everyone we meet today with the understanding that we wish them to be happy, to be peaceful, to be free of suffering. Again, Carlos Castaneda was asked one time how someone could have a more spiritual life. And of course, if you know this, the stories of Carlos Castaneda, he went to the Sonoran Desert in Mexico and uh, met a shaman there and took hallucinogenic drugs, cactus plants, and had fantastic trips and phantasmagorical experiences. You know, and so the person who was asking him was kind of maybe hoping for uh, permission to kind of wander off into the hallucinogenic realm. But actually, Carlos said, if you really want a spiritual life, every day before you get out of bed, remember, everyone you meet today is going to die. Everyone in this room that we've been practicing with this week is going to die. How do you want to treat them today? This might be the last time we see each other. You know, you don't have to think about that too long before you recognize that so much of the petty disagreeableness that gets in the way of our being loving to one another is just not worth it. And so, in practicing loving-kindness, we prepare our hearts to meet each other with that understanding and with that well-wishing. One part of the paramis or making a decision to personally pursue and develop the paramis is, is just to remember and to remind ourselves that we have this potential. And one way to do that is to recall our aspiration, to just remember, you know, just to take a list of the paramis and put it on your bathroom mirror and to just look at it every day just to remind yourself of one of them to practice today as a way of reaffirming your aspiration. It helps to really reflect on these qualities so that we can uh, develop a healthy uh, esteem and respect for them and to see that they truly do benefit our life. A few years ago, I noticed that in walking about some of the cities that we go to in our traveling to, to retreats, when I would see homeless people who were begging on the street, or panhandlers begging on the street, you know, they got their sign and sometimes they look really pitiful and sometimes they're not sober and they just have any number of conditions that are just, well, really unpleasant. I noticed that I tried to avoid them 
And I, and I, and I looked at that and I said, what, what am I doing trying to avoid this situation? Well, partly it was I didn't want to get hit on for a donation. And partly it was I didn't want to see them. I didn't really want to see their condition. It's really uh, oppressive. It's hard to deal with. It's hard to know what to do with with uh, this kind of uh, situation in our society. And uh, so I would avoid them. Uh, I could walk by them and not see them. Well, this is practicing delusion and denial, practicing being unmindful. And so I made it a point to stop that and started engaging, of course not all of them, but some of the homeless people that I would meet. And the amazing, I mean, it shouldn't be so amazing, but the amazing thing I discovered is every one of them is a human being. You know, there's a person there. It's not just a set of conditions and a bag of clothes. There's a person there who's suffering for whatever reason. You know, they might be addicted or, you know, not sober or homeless or mentally ill. Whatever it is, it's not my role to, to evaluate it or to confirm it, but just to recognize there's a human being here that's suffering. And when I would take the time to connect with them, I was always willing to, to make a gesture of support, some sort of uh, monetary uh, contribution. But I always made a point of, or I have started and continue to make a point, to connect with them as a human being. How are you doing today? How's it going? What do you need? And this is, this is the question that gets the most. Human interaction. How much do you need? I get some really interesting answers. <laughs> From $2 for laundry, okay, to a couple of guys outside the restaurant in San Diego where we went this summer. A couple of guys who were uh, well on their way to inebriated celebration. Uh, so I asked him, well, well, what do you need? And he said, 100 bucks. <laughs> I said, oh, no, 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 you've got to be more reasonable. I'm not going to give it 100. So he said, how about 60? <laughs> in, in handing over my $20 to support their happiness, <laughs> they were happy. Not because I gave them $20, but because I recognized them and offered them human love. And that's what we give everyone that we make that kind of connection with. We give them recognition as a human being, someone that you accept for just how they are, without, a, without pity or without shame, without blame, and you give them a little love. What I find is that I'm happier for it. They may be happy, fine, but I'm happier for it. And it's just, I mean, the $20 here, the $2 there, the five, is not going to break the bank. I told this story to some other students on a retreat uh, earlier this year. And the next morning, one of them said to me, oh, I was really upset when you told me about that. You're giving your, your money to homeless people. You're taking the dana that I gave you and giving it to homeless people. 
It's like, wow, I was really upset about that. I said, well, okay, you know. And she says, but then I thought about it and I said, wow, that's really good. So uh, she made a pledge to give a further $10 a month in order that I could give it to uh, beggars on the street because she could see the spread of her happiness coming to me and my happiness going to them and their happiness. Who knows what they do with it? <laughs> but it gets spread around. It's so simple. It's just being willing to make generosity uh, a practice, a, something that you do for your own happiness. Not because you're obligated or you have to or you feel pinched or whatever. It's just, you want to be happy? It's your choice. And to take it, to take that opportunity. But sometimes we need to recognize, we need to acknowledge that practicing the paramis is going to confront our cultural and family conditioning because it's not universal in our culture. These paramis, for example, one of the paramis is truthfulness. And to practice the Dharma is to practice the truth, our own individual. What is, your, what is the truth of this moment? And to know that, to recognize it, and to accept it, to acknowledge it. Well, I'm not fully aware of the nature of politics and the economy here in Australia, but I certainly know it in America. And our culture in America, our society in America, tolerates, condones, accepts, and expects deception in advertising from our politicians. We expect it. We, we, we are so cynical and so jaded. So, like, we, we don't believe what we read, what we see, and what we hear. This, this is a problem. This is, a, this is a, a real challenge for us because we see this around us all the time. We are conditioned by what we see around us. We have been conditioned to accept and tolerate and believe and uh, to, to, to practice deception. Well, let me ask you, have you made a commitment to always speak the truth in your life? Well, not yet. Well, if we haven't made a commitment to always to speak the truth, the next question is, are you a liar? Well, we don't like to say yes to that either. And so, where are we in our practice of truthfulness as a parami? When it's convenient, we can tell the truth. That may not be, that may be tolerable and tolerated by society. It may be all that's expected of you, but it may not be enough to purify your mind. And so we will see as we practice these paramis 
that we come up against our personal and cultural conditioning. And it takes a tremendous amount of courage and wisdom to know how to practice these paramis. And so when I say practice the paramis, it's just that. We practice being generous. We practice being truthful. We practice being loving and fail sometimes and succeed sometimes. And all along the way, grow in understanding and wisdom of how to practice these paramis in order that they make us happy. The paramis are happiness practices. If we know how to practice them wisely, then they'll make us happy. If we haven't yet learned how to practice them wisely, then we feel, you know, limited in our happiness, or we feel a little ashamed, or we feel like we can't really make that commitment. So even though the qualities themselves are very ordinary, very universal, and, and rather mundane, making a commitment to develop them is a significant commitment. Because the paramis are our practice of walking our talk. We want to wake up. We want to be a better human being. We want to be happy. These are the vehicles. These states of mind or these qualities of mind are the way. And yet, it's not easy to fulfill them, to walk that talk. All of these paramis are practices of mindfulness. To do them with mindfulness means to wake up to them, to wake up to the habits of our mind that prevent us, the uh, expectation, the, uh, the misunderstandings we have, and to really come to know them as a way of waking up. They're also practices of renunciation. All of the paramis are practice of letting go. And I'm gonna, gonna show you that. They also are all happiness practices. So they, they fit right in with the Dharma. They're mindfulness practices, they're, mind, they're renunciation practices, and they're practices that lead to happiness. For example, generosity, of course, is the practice of the noble eightfold path factor of right action. And what is it we let go of? Well, we let go of possessions, but we let go of our attachment, primarily. Morality, or living an ethical life, is the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path factors of right speech and right action. Letting go of carelessness, harmfulness, or harming, as well as acting out our obsessions. Renunciation practice of right thought, letting go of things, obsessions, beliefs, letting go of our self-identity. Wisdom, practice of right view, right thought, letting go of not knowing, letting go of knowing wrongly. And wisdom is letting go of naivete, 
we often know more than we're willing to admit to ourselves or to others. And we play naive, or we play ignorant, we play don't know. It doesn't serve anyone, especially ourselves and certainly not, not others, to pretend to know less than we do. Even though it may be hard to live up to what we know. Energy is the practice of right effort, letting go of laziness, of course, inertia, but letting go of procrastination. How long is your to-do list? My to-do list is endless. I, you know, for every one I knock off, and I can only knock off a few per day, there's a few more that get added on. So it never, it never ends. And one thing I've learned, well, I've seen, I don't know as I've learned it yet. I've seen it, that procrastination is more painful than just doing it. You know, the, the fear and dread and the putting off and the writing it again on a new to-do list <laughs> takes up more energy and causes more angst than if I just did it. And I see this over and over again. And yet, I haven't really learned it because I haven't stopped doing it. But um, I'm learning it again. Patience, of course, is right speech, right action, letting go of impatience, letting go of rushing. You know, we live in a speedy society. Everything about our life is pretty fast. And let's face it, we often have to get a lot done in a short amount of time. Uh, productivity is a, you know, kind of the power of me of the, of the work ethic. Um, but is it possible, or let me say, it is possible, to move fast, do a lot, without the feeling of rushing, if we stay present with what we're doing? being patient with just this much at this time. But it takes practice to do a lot in a short amount of time without the feeling of rushing. It takes practice. Patience is the practice. Truthfulness is the practice of right speech, letting go of denial, deception, insincerity. Resolve is an interesting uh, parami, not a common, uh, not so well known, but resolve is determination or resoluteness. It's the practice of right speech, right action, right concentration. It's letting go of, well, in our modern, uh, modern day language, it's letting go of multitasking. What is multitasking? Doing two or three things at a time, none of them very efficiently. Resolve isn't quite not multitasking, but resolve is being willing to come back and stick. It's kind of a stick to kind of checking in again, doing it again, again, coming back to doing what needs to be done. I have a friend who um, has uh, 35 years now in AA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, when she was 20 years, into AA, 
uh, she was uh, doing a retreat with us, and uh, I said to her, I said, oh, 20 years, congratulations, that's really fantastic. Uh, must be getting easier now, huh? And she said, no, it's not. This is a disease, and I'm working with this disease every day. And I said, wow. I said, that's a real commitment. She said, yes, it is. It's a commitment that needs renewing every day. A commitment isn't something we make once and then forget about it for the next year or two or three or 20 or 30. A commitment is only alive as long as we feed it. And, well, I have to eat three times a day. And a commitment may need that much nourishment too to be a commitment that really is alive for us. Loving-kindness, of course, is a practice of right thought, letting go of aversions, fear, impatience, hatred, of course. Equanimity, the tenth of the paramis that I want to speak about, is the practice of right view, right thought, letting go of reactivity, of course, letting go of passivity, as Kamala has mentioned. But I like to think of it as letting go of dramatizing ordinary human experience. You know what? We all live through human experiences. No matter how personal and how dramatic it is for you, it's ordinary. It's not to deny that it's not intense and it's not exciting or it's not depressing or whatever it is, but to kind of make much ado about nothing special is not equanimity. And, and while it's valued in our society, you don't even have to turn on the radio, it's all around us. Um, can we value equanimity? Can we value nothing dramatic happening? Hmm, sounds almost boring. But boring may be you know, one step closer to peace of mind. As I mentioned, all of these um, parami practices are practices of letting go, practices of renunciation. After a recent retreat on Maui, um, we, we rent a facility and we have a lot of retreat supplies, you know, cushions and benches and kitchen supplies and all kinds of the altar and all kinds of things that we have in storage at home that we take over to the retreat, set it up. At the end of the retreat, we pack it all up in the truck and bring it home for storage. And I always get some members of the local Sangha to help uh, with the packing and unpacking and storing. So at the end of one day, after several hours of packing, bringing home, storing, putting everything away, I looked around to see if there was anything left to take care of. And I saw one box of kitchen supplies. So I went over to the box of kitchen supplies, I picked up a box from it, and I held it up to my friend Duke, and I said, how would you like to have a box of wheat-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, gluten-free, chocolate chipless, chocolate chip cookies? And he said, there are some things in life I can do without. 
this is renunciation. <laughs> I mean, ask yourself, what in life can you do without? Can you do quite well without? You know, when we were younger, children, we had our favorite toy, our favorite friend, our favorite sport, a musical instrument, something, that was, you know, the source of our happiness, the source of our enjoyment, the reason that we get up in the morning and just play. And because it was such an important part of our life, we got very attached to it. Where is it now? Where's that toy? Where's that person? Where's that sport? Where's that musical instrument in your life? Gone. Maybe it's in the attic, but it's no longer in your heart. What happened? Well, we renounced it. We outgrew it. We let go of our fascination with it. Not all renunciation is painful, is kind of an imposed uh, you know, denial of what we really want. When we see that we have outgrown something, it no longer serves us. It no longer is the source of happiness. It's no longer the source of meaning and value to us. Then it's easy to let go. But so much of what we carry around in our hearts, in our minds, in our baggage, is acquaintances, behaviors, beliefs, assumptions that we've really outgrown, that we have no further use for, that do not support our highest aspiration. At one time in our life, they might have been valuable, important, and now they no longer, and yet we carry them around. We pay lip service to them. We've, we've got the emotional entanglement with them, but they don't serve us. An important practice for all of us is to take a look in the attics of your life and see what is no longer necessary. What can you do quite well without? And to make a, a ceremony, if you need to, of revealing it to yourself and letting it go. When I was younger, a younger adult, well, I guess I'm an adult. When I was a younger adult, I was uh, very interested in this musical group called the Grateful Dead. And, well, I was an addict, <laughs> kind of. I just really enjoyed their music and spent a lot of time listening and going to concerts and shows. And it was just really uh, an important part of my life for a number of years. And then I got involved in the Dharma. And, you know, Dharma is doing retreats and 
friends and just calming down, quieting down, enjoying silence, solitude, and stillness. And then I had this, this uh, uh, amazing conjunction of conditions. I went to a two-week retreat like this, the last day of which there was a Grateful Dead concert in the town right next door. So I said, what could be better? <laughs> Go to a retreat, calm down, quiet, open up, get really sensitive, really, you can really feel things, then go to a show. It was unbearable. It was so painful. It was so intense. It, it was just unbearable. It was suffering. But I hadn't realized that I had outgrown my fascination. and that I had found something of greater value that, or that made me happier, that was more subtle, that was more uh, fulfilling of my aspiration. The Buddha said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness one attains to a happiness that is greater then the wise will pursue that happiness which is greater. We have to recognize that happiness. We have to recognize how much we value what we have discovered on this retreat here. The clarity, the stillness, moments of silence, a community of like-minded people. If this is a value to you, acknowledge it. And look within your life at what doesn't support it. Which, what do we do? What do we believe? What do we, uh, what is it in our life that doesn't support what we truly understand to be a source of greater happiness to us. And can we let it go? Not immediately, maybe. But if we recognize what needs to be let go of, then we can gently move in that direction in our life. This is the essence of the Dharma path, of really establishing a life in the Dharma. Not waiting until we get back to a retreat, but really seeing that we can bring the conditions that support the Dharma into our life and taking the opportunity to do that. The choice is ours. Each one of us has the choice. There's no one stopping you. It takes patience, it takes understanding, takes letting go. We know that. We've been practicing it. It just takes remembering it. And then acting on what we remember and what we believe. This renunciation, as Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher of the last century said, 
Renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. Weariness and disillusionment with the treadmill seeking gratification, approval, profit, and status. So let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.